Hey everybody, this is the Week of Film Tech with Charles Hain. I'm here, I'm holding a Serp Genie 2. I'm not actually going to be talking about it today, but I'm working on a review of the Serp Genie 2, which is why I have one, which is why it's sitting in front of me, and so I figured I'd hold it up for the thing. But that's not the stories this week. The stories this week are the Aperture 120D Mark II, and then both Massive and Dropbox doing all sorts of cool video integrations. And then we've got not one, but two Hey Professors, all of that... This week on the Weekend Film Tech, all the news that you miss out on because you're making stuff, and it's news about how to make stuff to hopefully make your life making stuff even easier. Top story this week is the Aperture 300D Mark II. All right, so first off, who is Aperture? Aperture is a Southeast Asian lighting company. They focus on LED lights. And what's interesting about them, so they make a lot of like little panel lights, like little like you know, a soft light. They make a lot of bicolor units that are both daylight and tungsten. But Aperture have also been doing this sort of interesting thing. They're really focusing on, they're aggressively trying to go after that like old school Airy 650, Airy 1K. You've got a whole bunch of other people competing for the top, you know, obviously Airy with their RGB sky panels are super high end and they do all sorts of crazy stuff and they're pre-programmable with all of these crazy things and it's all RGB and all the colors all the time and that's great. And you've got Felix and Hive and other people going in there. But Aperture are really trying to build out this space for themselves, sort of aggressively attacking the space that used to be occupied by every film school ever that had like a three-light airy kit. In fact, when they came out with the 120D Mark II last year, I believe Aperture also came out with like a three-light kit. I believe I got to check that. Um, that's sort of like really directly targeting after that. Like, I need to grab a bag of lights and take them with me places, kind of place that really... The Airy kit lived in. They focus on affordable prices. These are lights that people, indie people, tend to end up being able to purchase a few of them. And um, they also really focus on punch. So, uh, you know, a lot of those names I listed, they've got RGB units, which is great. And RGB is super fun. But if 85% of your time you just want one color of light, pure white light, it's almost better to get other features, especially like a lot of punch, a lot of light output, a lot of directed light output and to give up the RGB. So they have a whole line of daylight-balanced units, the 120D and the 300D, that are really about punch. They're just D. They're just daylight. They're not even bicolor. They don't even do tungsten. The reason for this, obviously, is the sun is big daylight, so a lot of times we want a daylight source to match the sun, and also a lot of cameras are a little bit better in, in the blue of daylight than they are in the orange of tungsten light. The red camera was particularly famous for this, where if you want it, if you know, you got far less noise in that image, the more daylight-balanced sources you use. A lot of digital cameras have similar results. So it makes sense. Your aperture focus on daylight balanced LEDs and get punch out of them. Uh, when they went from the 120D to the 120D Mark II, they got 20% more efficiency out of it. And they did some other hardware revisions. We're finally seeing the same thing come to their big one, the 300D. Now, when I say the big one, we are not talking about this is not going to replace your 4K HMI. This is not going to light up a whole street at night. But what's really exciting about something like the 300D is, first off, it's affordable. The original was around a grand. I think the Mark II is like 1200 bucks. But it's also the perfect kind of thing where, like, you can use two V-mounts to power it. And then, like, if you're shooting a night exterior in a park and you want to have, like, somebody over sort of, like, you want to have just someone on standby to bring in a little fill. You can put the, you know, it has a little ballast that you can mount the V-mounts on. You can put it in their backpack and they can carry the light unit around. And for a light that's running off two V-mounts, you're getting a lot of power out of it. For a light that's drawing such a small amount of power, you're getting a lot of punch out of it. So you could theoretically use it for sort of a hard backlight sort of far away. So even if you're out there with a Jenny in that hypothetical park scenario, 
and you don't want to run a bunch of sting over to the other side of the park, you could throw someone over there. Is it powerful enough that it's going to be your only unit and you throw it up on a crane above? No, it's it's a 300D. It's 300 watt light. They are. Oh, you might hear the rain in the background. It just started raining in New York. So that is the noise you'll hear in the background. Although my editor's probably, the wonderful Ian Pullen's probably going to be able to cut that out. But you might hear that in the background. That's where Aperture and the 300, the original 300s really shined, is being this like only daylight balanced, but a little bit punchier, a little bit more strength, a little bit more oomph out of it than you're going to get from a competing RGB light because a competing RGB light is going to have less output in the trade-off as you get the RGB control. 300D Mark II has actually fixed a few of my big quibbles with the original 300D. I had a few with the original 300D. One, the yoke was not really strong enough. So a lot of times with these lighting units, you're going to put on a softbox. Uh, Aperture makes like a $100 softbox, um, which is great. The original softbox was really hard to open, so they made an umbrella-style one that pops open. Get the revised one. Don't get the original one. Um, and then also with the 300D Mark II, they just came out with, like, a softball. So, like, sort of a China ball equivalent, but it's a permanent lantern-style thing you could ring on there and then get this beautiful soft light as a Velcro nylon skirt so you can make it just parts of the light. It's a very nice little unit for, like, $89. Once you start putting stuff on the front, you really need a much stronger yoke because the unit gets really front-heavy. And you need a stronger yoke that's going to keep it in place to balance out for that front heavy unit. So that's a nice thing about this revision. The other nice thing about this revision is the original 300D had two pieces. It had a piece for the V-mount batteries and then it had a separate like ballast controller. And they combined it into one piece, which is great because the two-piece thing was really awkward. And you're always like, how do I rig them to a light stand? Do I rig them together? And the other nice thing about this one is now the V-mounts are on either side. So the when you're like sitting it on the ground, the V-mounts are going to balance for each other. Also, you could run it off one V-mount at half power, but if one of your battery dies, but you still have a little juice out of the other, you can still get half power out of the unit. This is not a huge revision. You're still getting about 20% more power out of it than the original, but some of that's also coming from a slight reflector change. So they made the reflector a little more focused. It's a 55-degree reflector instead of a 60-degree reflector. And the material is apparently a little tweaked, so you're going to get a little more punch out of it that way. And some other things are tweaked. But if you're using it with a Fresnel, they say their stats, I haven't tested this yet, but their stats are saying you can get roughly the equivalent of like a 575 HMI power out of it, which is pretty great. The other huge thing is full 0 to 100% smooth dimming. And four dimming modes. You can have an S-curved div, you can have a straight linear dim or a logarithmic dim. Really, really nice. One of the more frustrating things, like 10 years ago, we would never have cared because we didn't expect it. But now dimming is getting so like built into everything that I've been on a few shoots where it's been like real annoying that you couldn't dim all the way to black. Now, 10 years ago, we just would have like, it would have been without even thinking, you just put a flag in front of it. But now we're getting really used to nice dimming and then you'd work with a unit and it would dim almost down and then like shut off or you'd turn it on and it would like flash on and it was very frustrating. This was a shoot a few months ago and like full zero to 100% dimming is really nice. They're also Aperture putting a big effort into remote controllability. These lights come with remotes, but they also work with DMX, which is a cable or wireless system. But they're also really working on, and this came out at NAB 2019, along with their RGB Edison lights, they're really working on a mesh network. So what a mesh network means is usually I have, you know, I've got my app on my phone or whatever, and my app has to be within a certain distance of the light to control it, like 80 feet or whatever. But with a mesh network, as long as all of the lights are within 80 feet of each other, even if there's like 10 lights in the way and it's 800 feet between my app and the final light, as long as they're all within mesh range, they all talk to each other, passing signal around. Haven't tested it, have no idea if it works, 
But if it works, that's so super cool. And that feature is rolling out with the 300D Mark II. You'll be able to buy an adapter to make your older aperture lights part of this mesh network. That is super cool if that's working. They're also doing these little RGB Edison lights that were announced at NAB in April. It'd be interesting to see those. What I really want, and I want anybody to do this, but I, Aperture seems the most likely. I want like fluorescent T5 four-foot bulb replacements. UL type A, like no ballast replacement. I just want to be able to put them in my fluorescent tube and control them with an app over a mesh network full RGB. I want that so badly. What I want that for is I want to be able to like go into a location like a grocery store or a laundromat. And I want to be able to like rebulb the ceiling and then control all the lights in the ceiling with my app. And I don't want to have to like swap the ballast out or anything. So Aperture, make those lights. Or somebody else, make those lights. Somebody make those lights. Or somebody, give me the money to make those lights. Uh, if you're a lighting factory, talk to me. Let's figure out how to get these lights made because everybody should have these lights. So that is the 300D Mark II from Aperture. Up next, our second story this week is actually kind of two stories in one. So Massive and Dropbox both rolled out a whole lot of new post-production and filmmaking integrations this week. So let's talk with Dropbox first. Dropbox is the software you've probably heard of. Most of us have been using Dropbox for a long time. I use Dropbox with my clients constantly. I have one client, all their media lives in Dropbox. All of my computers have that Dropbox. So I feel like I can move project to project and it's always just there waiting for me. On top of that, Dropbox has never really had a lot of integrations I've used. They have paper, which I use Google apps, so I don't really think about it. They, they don't integrate directly with a lot of software I use. But just this week, they launched integration with Simon Says, which is an AI transcription service. So like if you can have videos that are just in your Dropbox. You don't have to like upload them to Simon Says. You can just be like, transcribe this and Simon Says will transcribe it. And um, there's like a Premiere Rush integration coming now where like things in certain Dropbox folders will automatically appear in Premiere Rush. You don't have to like upload them to Rush. These are really interesting integrations and they tell us a little something about what I think Dropbox is doing. Consumer space is obviously a wonderful space to be because there's a lot of consumers. But professionals pay more for things. And I think Dropbox is trying to build some professional services. They're also doing work in review tools, like you can do commenting on videos tied to timecode. It's not as slick as Frame.io, but it just comes with Dropbox. So if you're already paying with for Dropbox, it's a feature that can keep you in Dropbox as opposed to, say, moving to Frame.io. I think it's really exciting that we're seeing this out of Dropbox, but I think it's particularly interesting that it's Premiere Rush that it's integrating with. Because again, Dropbox has still been a consumer tool, and I think they're dipping their toe in professional tools. So I think it's a sign of where things are to come. But until we see like a robust Dropbox integration with like DaVinci Resolve that's as strong as the Frame.io one we saw at NAB, I'm going to hold off being super excited. On the flip side, Massive, if you don't know Massive, it's M-A-S-V.io. Massive is a tool, great tool. All they do is fast video delivery. That's their thing. So like if you have 100 gigabytes of dailies to send someone, it's like five times faster to do it with Massive than it is with Dropbox. Because Dropbox kind of slow. Dropbox is great for like certain things. And I use Dropbox a lot and have for a very long time. And like I said, some of my clients, everything lives in Dropbox, but it's never stuff that has to be somewhere fast. If I'm working on a project where it's like a commercial and I need hundred gigabytes of dailies and I need to hand it to someone and they need to get it tonight. So it can be edited tonight. So we can send a cut tonight. I would never do that with Dropbox. Dropbox doesn't have that kind of speed in their servers. And Massive is designed just for that. Massive is designed from the ground up for moving media around really quickly. I've done some tests with it. I've been using it with one particular client. Really like it. So they just rolled out a whole host of new integrations, specifically with Premiere, although hopefully Premiere is just a first step and we'll see Media Composer and Funnel Cut and Resolve come soon, where I can be working in Premiere and I can grab specific 
items from the bin and share that over massive, or I can take a timeline and share that over massive. And that timeline will get rendered in media encoder and automatically sent through massive. I can also share a whole project through massive. It's like, it's not going head to head with something like frame IO. It doesn't have like robust commenting that then comes back to the timeline. It's not like necessarily a work in progress review tool. It's more like a team collaboration tool with really fast movement of your dailies back and forth. Maybe you send all the dailies over over Massive, and then you start working on the project, and you know you want to send a timeline over with Massive, or you start bringing in some extra media locally. You have a bin of like new stuff that my partner who's editing in California doesn't have, and then you can just share that bin with them. Massive is really fast with media. Now they do this, but they also do Massive does this interesting billing where they bill by data. They don't bill monthly. So it's not a subscription thing. I like it for certain things because then I can assign it to a project. Like if I'd spend $80 on data for a project, I can assign that with an invoice, which I've never charged any of my clients for Dropbox. It's just a cost of doing business. And their premier integration is pretty cool. And I think it's going to be interesting to see more of that. All right. So those are, we're only doing two top stories this week because we've got two questions for Hey Professor. Our first question for Hey Professor. There's a sentiment I like that one's camera is not as important as the lighting. I agree. I mean, there's an exception. Like, in the great red versus Alexa debate, I would happily take, like, a Varicam with more money in the lighting budget over an Alexa. Alexa's obviously wonderful, and I love their lighting science, but, like, a Varicam's more affordable, and if I have the lighting units, I, I would rather have a Varicam in the lighting units I need than an Alexa and, I, and none. You know, if I have a big night exterior... And going Alexa means I don't get 4K HMIs or 18K HMIs or whatever I feel like I need for the size of the location. I will happily downgrade to a Varicam, which is a wonderful camera, so that I can have the lighting budget I need. So, yeah, I, I agree. There's exceptions. You know, like I would, I like to shoot projects on real, like on robust cameras. It's sometimes frustrating to shoot on tiny little cameras can be very frustrating if they weren't designed for filmmaking where it's hard to pull focus or something like that. You know, I wouldn't go out and do a feature on a DVX 100 right now. But in general, I agree. Lighting is more important than camera. If you have 1,000 or 2,000 for lights, which do you recommend for most indie film shoots? Oh, the thing I hate about this question is that your dollar value is not enough. The problem with lighting is threefold. One, lighting costs money. Two, there's like a nearly infinite number of accessories. And three, you need so many units. So, you know, in our dream scenario, we have always got the one unit that does everything we need. And there is that um, amazing unit by the German or Austrian cinematographer where it's like one unit and you use all these reflectors. And I keep trying to line up a demo and I haven't done it yet. But for most of us, we're usually working with multiple units. And so... You know, one of the popularities for the original Airy kit was that it was like three or four lights in one box with stands with all the accessories you needed and you didn't need to think about it. And you're reasonably confident you got that in your trunk. You can go do a basic interview setup, that kind of thing, and you're set. And I don't know that you can put that together for a grand or two these days because we have really moved over to an LED universe. LEDs are so much cooler to work with. They're generating way less heat, which is nice. They're giving you so much more light for the power that I, I would love to recommend. I would love to say like what you need to do is you need to go out and there's like a three light Felix kit for a grand or a three light aperture kit for a grand. I think you're going to spend that two grand on that three light Felix kit or that three light aperture kit. I think it's going to be two grand or more. But then the flip side of that is that most of the time on most shoots, even two or three, you know, I had a, 
had a single shot once where I think I had 50 lights going and it wasn't even a particularly big shot, but you end up, you know, for certain kinds of shots, you're putting lights in different places, you're hiding them in places, you're painting with light as much as you can to sort of control the story you're telling with the lighting. So, you know, I, I think a good basic three light or four light setup is really good. But the thing you also want to remember is that it's not just about raw lighting units, it's about how we shape them. So it's a couple of little C-stands so I can throw up a flag, so I can throw up a silk, so I can throw up diffusion. It's all of those things. And, you know, if you say 1,000 to 2,000, what I desperately want to say is spend 1,500 on this and 500 on accessories. I think it's going to bleed to more than that. But I think you should look at, I know Felix has like a three-light F-I-I-L-E-X, like a three-light little interview kit that's popular. I think it comes in a hard case. Don't remember the price, but I think that's really worth looking at. I think Aperture, the 120Ds are affordable. You could get like one 300D Mark II and two 120Ds or something. I have a nice like strong light and two fill lights kind of set up there, which I think is really interesting. I wish at that budget, I can't really get you into RGB. You know, like I use the Hive 100C all the time. I love the Hive. You know, the Hive 100C is only 100 watts and it's a grand because it's RGB. They have a, a Hive 575 coming out. It'll be like four grand because it's RGB. Super excited about it. Well, I will probably end up renting it on the occasional job where I need RGB and that kind of power, but we're not quite, yeah, it's a little bit out of your budget, but I would say, please try and put 75% of the budget into the raw light, but not forget that 25% of the budget for how you shape it, how you control it. Uh, If you're going, you're going to go all daylight balance with that budget. You know, some gels that give you a little bit of color control, especially some diffusion, some bounce cards, um, used C-stands. C-stands age pretty well, and if they've been treated properly, you should be able to find some used ones that treat you okay. Those kind of things, I think you're going to be really glad you take the time to make sure that's part of it. And I think that's what I would be looking at in that, this universe. I would also say that it is perfectly okay to be very slow in your buying of lights. We are in a massive time of revision in light light revision. You know, there was a couple of years there where it feels like every six months there was a new revolutionary camera. Lighting, though. Whoo, boy. Every time you blink, it's like a new thing. So, like, you know, if you have a shoot coming up, maybe spend 750 and get a light and get some diffusion, get an attachment, get a softbox, something like that, and then wait another six months or a year and get another and sort of slowly start building a package over time. Um, cause honestly, the, the light I would recommend five years ago is not the light I would recommend today in a much more dramatic way than I feel like is true with cameras. And then I got an email. Hey, professor, totally acceptable, complete respect. Famira films. Long question. I'm going to summarize. Been watching a lot of seventies movies. It struck me behind, besides the amazing visuals, the audio is such a distinct thing for a seventies movies. What is it that I'm hearing? There's obviously a lot of ADR. But there's like a warm and fuzzy and sort of flat sound. He played with the heat plugin in Pro Tools, so we already started the journey. But uh, wh- how do you think you should recreate this particular sonic quality in a digital environment? Is it all just compressor and EQ, or is there more at play? So I'm going to give you an answer that I, I wish I wasn't about to give, but I'm going to give it anyway. So to summarize the question again, 70s movies sound a very specific way. How do I make my digital audio sound like that? And I'm actually going to say you should consider an uh, analog step. Obviously. In picture, we don't really do this anymore. It's very rare. I know one person who has done it, but it's super rare to be like, I'm going to shoot digitally and then print it out to film and then scan it back. 
It happens, not often, but it happens. There's been a ton of work in recreating the digital looks on the film looks in digital. So there's like Film Convert, which just came out with an update nitrate and a bunch of other things that are useful, but we don't do it much. And the reason we don't do it much is it's super expensive. However, in audio, it's actually much cheaper and I know a lot of people still do it. Now, most of these people are music people, but I know a bunch of music people who still keep like an analog step alive. Because those 70s movies, first off, a lot of ADR, a lot of ADR. But also when you talk about like warm and fuzzy and a little bit flat, you're really talking about an analog sound. And I think you should see, I don't know where you're located. You ask a lot of questions, so um, I should find out where you're located. But I would see if you can't talk, and you might not have to find motion picture people to do this, but you might find like a music studio in your area that does something like this. If you can bounce it out to analog and back. I have a friend who is like a big DJ. Uh, it's funny because DJing means nothing to me. But like we were like hanging out and like people came up and like recognized him. And it was like a legitimate, like people starstruck by him moment, which is very funny when it's like your friend that you don't think of as being famous. And, you know, he maintained a full audio setup because he was like, oh, no, man, you can't do anything digital to get that noise. Like you've got to bounce it out to audio to analog tape and then run it through analog tape and then get it back in. And that was the only way he created some of the very specific noises he made. I would investigate if that is an option. Because, you know, those early 70s movies, they're going to be recording Denagras on quarter-inch tape. Weirdly enough, in my office, I have a bunch of quarter-inch tape because when the company Ampex that was making it stopped making it in 2000, uh, when the company that was making it in 2003, 2004 announced they're going to stop making it, I bought it all up because I thought I would need it and I never did. So I have a bunch of blank quarter-inch tape. Um, and there's some on eBay. Quarter-inch Denagra. And then in post-production, I think it was half-inch or one-inch on these big dubbing machines. So... They were using narrower frequency microphones in the 70s. They were running it straight into an Agra. That Nagra was recording it to quarter inch. Then they were dubbing it in post. And all that gives it a very specific sound. Even in an ADR room, it gives it all a very specific sound. I'm sure someone in our Twitter thread will have a, oh no, there's a Pro Tools plugin that does all that. You don't want heat. You want glow or rain or whatever it is. I believe them. If you keep exploring all of those Pro Tools plugins or Fairlight plugins, if you're a Resolve user and you don't find it, I would say, see if you can't investigate, like, you know, in New York, I just know, like, one music studio that still has a lot of analog stuff they keep alive. Like I said, my buddy in LA who keeps stuff alive. Like, wherever you are, I think you're in Europe because your name is Hans. See if you can't find someone who keeps analog alive and see if they wouldn't do a, an, an analog dub out where, like, they put it out to analog and then they re-digitize it. And see if that doesn't give you any of that warm, fuzzy feeling you are looking for, would be my guess. Because there are some times where that's the only way you can get what you want. All right, everybody, that has been the week in film tech. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at onrecky, O-N-R-E-K-K-E, recky. Sign up for the mailing list at weekinfilmtech.com, and I just send out a reminder with, like, new episode, and here's the stories I talked about. I don't, like, spam on it. You can ask me questions at Twitter, at Charles Hain, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E. Um, that's where I get most of my Hey Professors, but people also find my email from charleshain.com. Um, and please, if you enjoy the show, subscribe to it. Tell your friends who are also film nerds. If you find yourself, like, telling someone about a thing you learned on here... Share with people where you learned it. Thank you very much. I will see everybody next week. It will be August on the Week in Film Tech.